We live in a world filled with misery, don't we? You look around, you turn on the TV, if you read the news, it's not difficult for us to see that there is misery around us. Most of you know that this past week we went and were at a block party in Anniston uh, at Glen Addy Homes, which is a housing project in West Anniston. And we were there not really to do anything very impressive, but just to, just to have a presence there and to give some inflatables and hand out some snow cones and cook some hot dogs. So we're out there and we're, we're laying out these inflatables, right? And if you've ever dealt with that, that, that just gets you right with Jesus, right? I mean, there's, there's nothing fun about setting up an inflatable, especially when it's about 99 and so we're out there, and we're setting up the inflatables, and as we're setting them up, the kids are just coming from everywhere. And it was just striking. I think the first thing that just struck me is just how many children are there. And they're, just, they're coming from everywhere, and they're so excited. And there was one particular little girl, and she was about my daughter's age, and you could tell she was kind of sassy like my daughter, and... She was climbing over on top of this thing, and we're trying to set it up, and she's just so excited, you know, and, I, and, and when she was climbing on it, that was really, really struck me, that she and Gracie are the same. The only difference is that Gracie was born into a family with more, greater affluence than that little girl. Gracie would have been just as excited as she was about the bouncy house. There's something about a bouncy house that makes us want to cuss and them want to just go crazy, Right? She would have been just as excited, just as anxious, having just as much fun. I would have been having to say, sweetheart, not yet, not yet. She would have had just as much disappointment when I told her that it would be just a little while before she could jump. And yet, this girl is living. And if you look around where she's at, it's just a miserable place. It seems almost like a prison yard that you're on. And according to the... Uh, Council for Childhood Poverty, the chances are that she will live her entire life that way. She did not ask to be born into the project. She did not ask to be born in Glen Addy. She did not ask to be born into poverty. But more than uh, almost half of the people, almost half of the children that are born into lifelong po born into poverty experience lifelong poverty. And so she is finding herself now in a cycle of misery that is vicious and real. If we open our eyes, we'll see the misery around us. If we'll open our eyes, we'll see precious inner city children that are languishing. If we'll open our eyes, we'll see stay-at-home moms that are lonely. If we'll open up our eyes, we'll see successful businessmen that are living without any significance in this life, without any purpose in this life, filled with utter depression. If we'll open up our eyes, we'll see senior adults wasting away in nursing homes, going weeks at a time without so much as a phone call. If we'll look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves, we'll realize that we indeed are miserable too. Many of us. And so this morning what I want us to see is that Jesus came for the miserable. And that Jesus came to 
remove the misery from the miserable, that they might have new life, that they might have the abundant life. And now the church is an extension of his hand. The church is an extension of his hand to those that find themselves in situations of misery. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9 and stand with me as we read God's word together. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 27. God's word says, And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. And they were going away, behold, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man was mute, uh, who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince. Of demons. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Having just healed Jairus's daughter, the remarkable has taken place, and no doubt, as they have seen this 12-year-old little girl that they themselves had all known to be and pronounced dead, walking among them, Jesus's fame begins to spread. And so Jesus leaving that house, no doubt, has a large crowd of people following after him, waiting to see the next miraculous thing that Jesus does. And among the crowd that was following after Jesus, the Bible tells us there were two blind men there. Now understand that in Jesus' day, there was no equal opportunity employment. There was no disability. To have a handicap, severe, like blindness was to be condemned to a life of begging if you were going to survive. And so these blind men, without any other hope, are accustomed to begging other people for help. Their position is grave. They cannot provide for themselves. They cannot operate in the norms of society. They cannot do anything. Even having a normal family would have been very likely an impossibility for them. And so they are in in the midst of this crowd following after Jesus... When they cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us. Now, what's interesting to me about that is the way that they approach Jesus. They approach Jesus not with an eloquent sales pitch as to why he should heal them. They approach Jesus not with words to express to him how much he needed them in his ministry. They didn't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, let me tell you, if you will heal us, if you will help us, we will do X, Y, and Z for you. Let us make a deal with you, and if you will help us in our need, we will contribute to your ministry. No, they came to Jesus pleading, the Bible says. Pleading, begging, imploring him. Jesus, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us, son of David. It's interesting the way that they come, because this is the way that we all come, isn't it? This is the only way that we can come to Jesus, is to throw ourselves at his feet and to beg him for mercy. Now, they, it's 
we should not run past the phrase that they refer to Jesus as. This, O son of David. The son of David is a significant thing in the book of Matthew. Throughout Matthew, he has been establishing, writing primarily to Jews, the lineage of Jesus. Remember how he kicks off his gospel is with a genealogy that establishes Jesus as the son of David that would reign on the throne of David forever. So by the blind men crying out to Jesus and calling him the son of David, they are clearly identifying Jesus as the Messiah. They are identifying Jesus as the one that God promised way back in Isaiah 35 that we read this morning. Now what is the connection? Why is it that they would be needing mercy and refer to Jesus as the son of David? Why, why, why would it help them that Jesus is the son of David to receive mercy from him? Could he not just be uh, a miracle worker? Could he not just be a uniquely empowered prophet from God? Why did they need to refer to him as the son of David? Remember who the son of David is. The son of David, the Messiah, he is a gift of mercy from God to his children, right? They are in exile. They are under Roman occupation. Why? Because of their unfaithfulness. Because of their sin. Under the judgment of God. But God has promised that one day I'm going to deliver you from your sin. One day I'm going to deliver you from Roman occupation. One day I'm going to deliver you from the grave condition that you find yourself. And I'm going to do that through who? Through the throne of David. I'm going to do that through the Messiah that I'm sending. So the Messiah is a merciful gift to God's people from God. And remember what we read this morning in the prayer time. They understood, though they would not have understood the Messiah the way that we did. They would not certainly have understood that Jesus was going to go and die on the cross so that they could believe in him and be raised from the dead. They, They didn't understand the holistic picture of the gospel. But what they did understand is that he was God's merciful gift and that when he came, he would heal the blind. You know, in fact, throughout the whole Old Testament, there was not one instance in which the blind were healed. Do you know that? That's why at the end they say, we've never seen this kind of stuff in Israel before. We've never seen somebody do this. And so they cry out to him, have mercy on us, son of David. Have mercy on us because we know that you are God's instrument of mercy to his people. Now, the way that they come to him is important because it highlights the picture of what God does through Jesus. It's a gift of mercy that Jesus is for us. Have you ever noticed how the hurting are drawn to Jesus here? Throughout Matthew 8 and 9, the hurting are drawn to Jesus, aren't they? Over and over and over, we see the paralyzed men brought to Jesus. We see Jesus eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners, right? We see Jesus with the woman with the issue of blood drawn to Jesus. Jairus with the dead daughter drawn to Jesus. Church, I want want hurting people to be drawn to us. I want Iron City to be known as a hospital for the hurting. I want Iron City to be known as a hospital for sinners, as a hospital for the disenfranchised, as a hospital for the fringe of society. So it would be good for us to learn from Jesus. Why were they so drawn to him? I think they were drawn, first of all, by his compassion, right? Jesus never sees people as an inconvenience. Jesus never looks at them as an interruption. No, instead, what does Jesus do? He fellowships with them, right? But it's not just his compassion that 
that draws them to Jesus. It's his action, right? Compassion without action is pointless. Homeless people don't need us to feel bad for them. Homeless people need us to give them a meal. And every time Jesus feels compassion, what does he do? He steps into their life, into their situation, and he resolves it, right? In other words, Jesus identifies their misery, and then Jesus works to remove that misery from their life, right? This is the mission of Jesus. This is the mission of Jesus. Jesus saw all of us spiritually bankrupt. Jesus saw all of us spiritually blind, spiritually dead. And what did he do? He stepped into the earth. He stepped into our situation. He stepped into our condition that he might resolve it for us. If we're going to be a church that hurting people are drawn to, we've got to look like that. We've got to be a church of compassion and a church of action. We can't do everything, but we've got to do something. But this is what mercy is. Mercy was not, in Jesus' day, was understood to be two-dimensional. On one side, it is to be filled with compassion. It is to be filled with hurt for the hurting. It is to have your heart wrecked for them. And at the same time, it is to have the resources, the ability, and the willingness to go into that situation and to resolve it. That the heart of mercy is to remove misery. Mercy removes misery. If we think about it in the context of the gospel, you can understand it that way too. We, we talk a lot about grace, right? But grace and mercy are different. Grace is what? Grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. And so we... In, in the gospel, what happens is, is God sees us in our misery, sees us in our spiritual deadness, sees us in our spiritual blindness, and then by grace gives us salvation through Christ. By grace gives us the eternal life that none of us could have had. But that's not all that he gives us, right? Not only does God give us salvation, but by his mercy, he removes from us the consequences that we are owed. By mercy, he removes from us the condemnation that our sin is owed. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And so he removes from us that wage. We might understand that mercy is grace applied, right? That God saves us by his grace. He gives us the gift of salvation by his grace. And when that salvation is applied in our lives, when that salvation is made true in us, that at that moment, by his mercy, the result, the consequences of our sin are then removed. And so these men are coming and they're pleading with Jesus for mercy. Not because there's anything that they can help, he can help, they can help him with. Not because that there's anything they bring to the table, but instead because they are sinners wrestling with the remnants of sin and they need to be delivered by his mercy. They need him to have compassion on them and then to step into their lives and to remove the misery from them. Church, that's the way we come to him too. All of us. We come to him and the only thing that we can do is plead with him for mercy. We bring nothing to the table for God. We bring nothing to the table that he needs. We bring nothing to the table that he's missing. We have nothing to offer. We are spiritually dead and bankrupt. And so we go to him the same way this man does, these two men do, and we throw ourselves at his feet saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And as many of us who will come, 
As many of us who will plead with him for mercy. As many of us who will throw ourselves at his grace. As many of us who will, he will receive them, receive us. And he will apply his grace and remove our condemnation by his mercy. And here's what that means for us. That if we are children of mercy, we must be willing to express mercy. That children of God are always children of mercy. That children of God are those that have richly experienced his mercy, richly received his mercy, and then in turn express and demonstrate his mercy into the world. And that wherever in our lives we find gaps of mercy, wherever it is in our lives where we find gaps of mercy, there is there a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. There is there a fundamental misunderstanding of the mercy that we've received, of the grace that we've been given, of the gift that we now have, of the judgment that has now passed through, as John 5 says. Turn with me. I want us to see the severity of this. Turn with me to Matthew 18, to a striking passage. I want us to understand the weightiness of what it means to miss mercy. The weightiness of what it means to not be children of mercy. This is a parable that Jesus tells as he is teaching his disciples about mercy. Matthew 18, we're going to start in verse 23 and read through verse 35. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him, who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his, own, his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until you should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all all that debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The parallels between this passage and our passage are striking. The word that the man uses to say, pity, have pity on me, is the exact same word translated in Matthew 9 when the men say, have mercy on us, son of David. And how do they come to him? They come to him the same way the two blind, the servant comes to the king the same way the two blind men do, right? Pleading. Pleading with the king. Have mercy on me. Have pity on me. The point is clear. That those who Receive mercy, give mercy. And those who don't give mercy will never receive mercy. Don't miss that. There's urgency in what Jesus is saying, church. There's urgency in what he's saying. This is, these are soul-searching words. Search your heart. 
Are you a person that has compassion on others? Are you a person that sees inner city families and dismisses them as vagrants rather than going into their life to remove their misery? Search your heart. Because in your life, if there is no mercy being given, there is no mercy that has been received. See, I think what Jesus is saying is this. Is that if you ever taste the sweetness of God's mercy, if you ever taste the goodness of being delivered from your sin, if you ever truly wrap your mind around the forgiveness that is offered to you in the gospel, you can't help but to show other people mercy. That when you know God's mercy, you want to demonstrate God's mercy. You want to express God's mercy. So, if in your life there is no desire to express mercy, there is no desire to act on compassion, then very likely in your life there is no presence of the gospel, no experience of God's mercy. You see, misery loves company, doesn't it? Miserable people like other people to be miserable, but the gospel comes to remove misery. So the children of the gospel, children of God, are those that are looking to remove as much misery as possible. So I call on you. Search your heart. Search your heart. Is there mercy there? But I don't want to just look at this side of mercy. I want to look at a positive side of mercy. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Remember when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount kicks off in the Beatitudes, right? Do you remember what the Beatitudes are all about? The Beatitudes are teaching us about joy, right? It, it, there's a series of statements that say, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And the word blessed there can be translated as happy. Happy are. Look at verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So we've been given two formulas by Jesus, right? If you don't demonstrate mercy, you don't receive mercy. But, but, if you do express mercy, if you are a merciful person, a person filled with mercy, then you will then receive mercy, and as a result, will find joy and blessing and happiness. That is, is that mercy is a key that unlocks a storehouse of joy. Church, I don't want you to miss this. I don't want you to miss this. There's too many of us living joyless lives. There's too many of us that have surface level joy, that have superficial joy. We haven't plunged deeply into the nature of the gospel. We haven't plunged deeply into the nature of the mercy of God, that our joy might be fuller, that our joy might be greater, that our joy might be increased. And one of the ways that Jesus says that happens is by living as a person of mercy, as a merciful person. Let me tell you how good the gospel is. This is what happens. You come and you plead. You throw yourself on the feet of Jesus, right? Have mercy on me. And he does. He demonstrates mercy and he reaches down his hand to an unclean sinner and he delivers you from the grave, right? And you've experienced mercy, the, the sin of your past pardoned. All the weight that you've been carrying, forgiven. All the burdens that you have, taken from you, nailed to the cross. You've experienced the joy of mercy. Christian, think about it. Was that not the most joyful experience of your life? To know that you've been carrying all of this stuff and now you've been set free according to the mercy of God? 
So you know the joy of mercy received. And you go out and you live your life having just received such an incredible gift of mercy from God himself, knowing you were unworthy, and you see someone in their misery. Maybe it's in their own sinfulness and they don't know about Jesus and you tell them. Maybe they're hungry and you give them something to eat and help them get on their feet. Maybe you help them get a job and, and train them and equip them so that they can provide for their family. Maybe you provide services that help them with their children. But you, you go into their situation of misery and you call them out and you, you bring mercy into their life, right? And then what do you get to experience? Not only do you get to experience mercy received, you get to experience the joy of mercy given, right? Which is a whole other dimension of it that I think we're missing. It's a whole other dimension of it. You can't really even understand how good the mercy is that you've received until you've then been the, the giver of mercy. And so then as you go deeper in giving mercy, you understand what it meant when God gave you mercy even better. And you find greater joy in that, which makes you want to give more, which makes you understand it deeper, which makes you want to give more, which makes you understand it deeper. It's a spiral deeper and deeper into the nature of joy. Here's what I want you to hear. The moments in your life in which you best know joy are those moments in which you most understand mercy. The moments in your life in which you best know joy are those moments in which you most know mercy. Think to your salvation. Mercy received, and you found such incredible joy. Joy that you were convinced in that moment would sustain you forever. Think to the moments that you've served. The moments that you've given to people that nobody else even knows about. The joy that you felt. You know you shouldn't feel guilty about that, by the way. Somehow, we've gotten this whole thing twisted up that when we do something good for people out of kindness of our hearts and out of the goodness of the gospel, that then we feel guilty that we feel good about doing good. You should not feel good. Jesus designed you to find joy by honoring him, by doing good in his name, in his honor. Increase your joy by demonstrating mercy. That's not selfish. That's not selfish. Increase your joy by expressing mercy. Increase your joy by then knowing God's mercy better. Increase your joy by watching misery be removed from people. Increase your joy by experiencing just a fraction of what it feels like when, when God gives his mercy to us. Increase your joy by demonstrating mercy. Who in your life this week can you show mercy to? Is there somebody that works for you that just needs some mercy? Can you show them mercy this week? Is there somebody in your family, they just they need mercy this week? Is there an opportunity of, of ministry that you have where you can go into a situation of misery and bring mercy and help remove the misery? Where is the opportunity this week? Because there is an opportunity there for a twofold joy. Joy in your life and joy in their life. Both in Christ. At the center of our passage here is not just mercy though. It's also faith. Faith, Matthew has been teaching us quite a bit about faith, right? Going back to last week. But in our, our text again this morning, it's, not, it's at the center because he goes, I guess I better turn back to Matthew chapter 9, jumping all over the place this morning here. But he goes and he 
asks them a clarifying question, doesn't he? He says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Do you believe that I'm able to do this? In other words, do you really have faith in me? And they answer in the affirmative. And what does Jesus say? According to your faith, you have been made well. According to your faith, it will be done for you. Well, last week we talked a lot about faith too, right? We talked about how faith is uh, believing in the absolute trustworthiness of God. That faith is believing in the absolute trustworthiness of God. In other words, it is you entrusting your well-being into the hands of God. That faith is the opposite of independence. Instead, it is not saying, look at what I can do, or I must get stronger, I must get better. Instead, faith is radical dependence on God. This week I want to take and add something else to our understanding of faith. And that is this, that faith heals us because it brings us to Jesus. Faith heals us because it brings us to Jesus. Think about the the healings that we've seen. In this case, it it says that they follow after Jesus, right? Why do the two men follow after Jesus? They follow after Jesus because they have faith in him. Because they have faith that he will heal them. And so their faith brings them to the feet of Jesus. And the mute man, the demon-oppressed mute man, in verse 32, what does it say? It says, oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. So the faith of his friends brings him to Jesus, brings him to his feet, right? We go back to the beginning of chapter 9, and we have the paralyzed man who can't walk, who can't get to Jesus. And what does it say? His friends bring him to Jesus. Jesus looks at his friends and says, because of your faith, all of your faith, the faith that brought him to me, this man will walk today. This man's sins will be forgiven today. Jairus' faith brings him to Jesus for the healing of his daughter. The woman with the issue of blood, her faith brings her to Jesus to grab hold of his garment. That our, our faith heals us in so much as it brings us to Jesus. And only when it brings us to Jesus. You see, faith itself is impotent. Faith itself is powerless. Matter of fact, if you have your faith in the wrong thing, it's destructive. Ask anybody who had their faith in the housing market before it collapsed in 2008. Ask anybody that's put their faith in a preacher that let them down or abandoned them altogether. Ask anybody who put their faith in a husband or a wife or a friend that ultimately betrayed them. Ask anybody that spent their entire life placing their faith in themselves and in what they're capable of and what their ability is. And in what their commitment level will be. And in what their work ethic will be. And you will always find that faith in the wrong uh, place, misaimed faith, misplaced faith, is destructive faith. So Jesus is not so much commending their faith as he is commending the aim of their faith. That their faith is in him. That their faith is that he is capable. Their faith is that he is powerful. And your faith will always bring healing to you if your faith brings you to the feet of Jesus. In other words, it brings you to the source of power. This morning we need to evaluate our faith. We need to look at our faith. Is our faith misplaced? Is our faith misaimed? Where in your life do you have misaimed faith? Where in your life are you looking in the mirror and saying, I've got to do this? 
I've got to do this. I've got I've to pick myself up. I've got to dust myself off. And I've got to make this right. There are some of you, you've been trying to be saved that way your whole life. You've been trying to earn God's approval. You've been trying to earn God's love. You've been trying to earn God's friendship. And every morning you wake up and you know about the Bible and you see Bible verses quoted on Facebook and you hear about people talking about the Bible at, at work and you don't feel joy and delight. You feel oppression because you every morning wake up and think, I've got to do this. I've got to live according to the Bible. I've got to do this better and become better and become stronger and work harder and be more faithful and do all of these things. And there's no delight in that because you're looking at yourself. Your faith is not in Jesus' grace. Your faith is not in Jesus' mercy. Your faith is in your own ability. And it's oppressing you. And it's enslaving you. Some of you are Christians. And you've brought yourself to Jesus. You've cried out to mer- in mer- for mercy to him. But if you are honest, if you look through your life over the years, there are some areas in which your faith has gone away. That your faith is now misaimed, and then rather than having faith in Jesus like you did in the beginning, now it's starting to rest back on your shoulders again, and you're exhausted, and you're tired, and you're worn down, and you're carrying burdens that you have no ability to carry. Used to, you entrusted your marriage to the Lord, but now you're carrying the weight. Used to, you, you entrusted your children to the Lord, but now you're carrying the weight. Used to, your, your joy was found in Christ, but now you're looking everywhere else and buying new things and going new places and having to ha- join new clubs, trying to s- wrestle up some joy somewhere. Your faith is misaimed, brothers and sisters. Your faith is misaimed. You thought by pulling back, you would have more time to find more joy. You thought about... If you could just pull back from church a little bit, pull back from fellowship a little bit, pull back from working so much, pull back from serving, pull back from Bible study, pull back from prayer, that if you could just pull back just a little bit, right? If you could just pull back just a little bit, that you would find more joy and leisure and time. But what you found, I bet, if you will look back over your life, is not greater joy, but lesser joy. Not nearness to God, but distance from God. Not hope but despair. Where in your life is there misaimed faith? And is there any place, is there any, is there a, have you ever had enough faith in your life to bring someone to Jesus? Have you ever had the faith to bring other people? That's what we see, the paralyzed man. That's what we see with the demon oppressed man. They're bringing him to Jesus. Because look what happens. They marvel, right? They marvel. It says in verse 33, when the demon had been cast out and the mute man spoke and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Think about who this is talking about. Israel watched the walls of Jericho fall down. Israel watched plagues rush onto Egypt. They saw the angel of death pass over them and hit every Egyptian home on the way. They saw the Red Sea divide. They saw bread fall down from heaven, water pour out of a rock. And yet they see this and they marvel, saying, we've never seen miracles like this before. We've never seen the miracles that Jesus is doing. See, what your faith does is your faith brings you to Jesus and allows you to be a first-hand witness to his power. 
Your faith allows you to be a first-hand witness to the power of God. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. That's what I want. More than anything else in my life, I want to live in awe of God. More than anything else in my life, I want to be a first-hand witness to God doing things that I know could happen no other way. In my life, I want to be near to him. I want to see blind people start seeing. I want to see deaf people start hearing. I want to see dead people start living, paralyzed people to start walking. I want to watch that and marvel at what God has done. I want to watch God step into the life of the despairing mother and deliver her. I want to see God go into the life of the depressed businessman and call him to intense joy. I want to see him go into the insecure teenager and give him roots to hold him down in Christ. I want to marvel at God, brothers and sisters. And I fear that so often the blind aren't seeing and the deaf aren't hearing in our community because we don't have the faith to bring them to his feet. That the dead aren't living and the paralyzed aren't walking because the church has had the faith to bring them to the feet of Jesus. We've got to have enough faith to not live an ordinary life with religious flair, but instead to live a life that is remarkably centered on the power of God. If Jesus said the same phrase to the two blind men that he said to you, that he said to them, what would happen? If Jesus looked into your life and says, according to your faith, may it be done for you, what would actually happen? Would anybody come to faith in Christ? Would any healing happen? Would any incredible movement of God take place in our community? Would any great movement of God happen in our country? Brothers and sisters, what I'm asking is, do you have any faith? Do you have any faith? Don't you want to be in awe of God? I want to preach in places that don't speak my language and watch God call people to salvation knowing it had nothing to do with me. I want to see you move to Vermont to plant a church with the Nunnelies. I want to see you move to Mexico or South America or Swaziland. I want to see you move there, not because it makes sense, not because it's safe, but in fact because it's dangerous. And if God doesn't come through, you will die. I want to see you in awe. If our church could ever get anything, if anything could ever happen in us, a dream of us being in awe of God, in awe of his power, in awe of his mercy, coming to him by faith to his feet, that we might experience that power firsthand. Do you realize that right now across the globe people are experiencing that? Do you, you realize that? The church at Brook Hills in Birmingham adopted, every sing, adopted or fostered every single orphan in Shelby County. Shelby County. We can do that here. You realize that right now in South Korea, the church is growing by tens of thousands as Christians are going out and telling the good news of Jesus to the friends that they already have. We can do that here. Right now in Muslim countries, Muslims where there's not even a missionary are having dreams that are bringing them to faith in Jesus, going out, having to seek out missionaries that they can say, tell me about this guy in the dreams. 
We can see that in our community. Guys, I want to see God move, and I want to see it firsthand. I don't just want to hear the stories. I want to watch it happen. And it can happen right here if we will be a people of mercy and a people of faith that will come, bring ourselves to the source of power, and say, in Jesus, wherever you want us to go, whatever you want us to do, we're in with you. This morning, where do you see misery? Because wherever that is, you'll find an opportunity of mercy. Seek that as an opportunity to go in by faith, bring those people to Jesus, so that you can be a first-hand witness of the power of God right here, right now, in the 21st century. Church, we can do it. Not because there's anything great about us, we are a podunk church in rural Alabama. But the God of Iron City is the same God of the New Testament. He is the same God of Isaiah 35. He is the same God of Exodus. And he is the same God of Matthew 9. And we are just as much his people. Let's go, church. Let me pray for us.